Good morning. Welcome again. Glad that you're in the house of the Lord. Hope you're glad you're here. It's been good already, hasn't it? Thank you to Craig and our worship team for leading. Hey, we believe that all Scripture, all Scripture is powerful, it's profitable, it's useful, all Scripture. And so this summer, we're going to start a series today looking at passages that many of us don't even want to read. Uh, many pastors definitely don't want to preach on them uh, because they're challenging, difficult passages to try and figure out uh, what, what's going on. So we're going to look at a different book each week uh, throughout the summer uh, as we uh, go through the summer at these books. And <clears throat> so how many yearly Bible read-throughs have died in the book of Leviticus? I mean, and if you made it through Leviticus, then you stumbled over numbers, for sure. And so we're going to look at these books, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, different of the uh, prophets, uh, smaller pro prophetic books that we're going to look at in the weeks ahead, and it is going to be fun. So if you are first time at Fullness today, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Yes, you came Today I'm preaching on the book of Leviticus, and hopefully as we look at this book together, uh, you'll see that it is, it, it is more than just profitable. It is unbelievably powerful. Uh, we stumble over it for uh, a, a number of reasons. First of all, it, it doesn't, there's not much narrative in the book of Leviticus. As a matter of fact, there are only three short narrative passages in, in the book, most of it seems to be made up of rules and regulations and laws and all sorts of stuff that we have trouble relating to. It seems like, it seems like a strange book, and in some ways for us, it is. I mean, starting with just the name, Leviticus. Leviticus, we, it, it, it's not really a cool name uh, to me, Leviticus, Psalms, Romans, uh, those books to me have more of a ring to them, but Leviticus, the name comes from um, a, a Latin word that has to do with the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi became the Levites or the priests, and many of the instructions given in this book have to do with priestly functions, and as a result, we struggle even over, over the name. We, we, we cruise through Genesis and Exodus but once we hit Leviticus, it seems like it's a slow go. Second, we have trouble with it because of the cultural context. I remember when we uh, first moved into this building, we had this big discussion about whether we were going to let people bring coffee in here uh, because people spill it. Uh, they, they, they spill things. And, you know, the carpet was new and... Uh, so we, we kind of have this discussion. Are we going to let people bring coffee into the sanctuary, to the house of the Lord? And we finally decided we would. We'd be, you know, really loose and let people bring coffee in. I mean, these people were living in tents. And at their house of worship, they're slaughtering animals. They're burning incense. There are open fires going on. Uh, we have trouble relating to the cultural context. Many of you here today don't even know your neighbor's names. 
I mean, but they're living in tents right up next to each other. And so there are rules that are given to govern. How are we going to how are we going to worship and how are we going to live with one another uh, in this close, in these close corners? And that gets a third thing we struggle over, which is that it's filled with rules and regulations about diet and dress and what we consider archaic religious rituals. And some of them, some of them seem weird or at best random. I mean, I just wrote down uh, just a couple of them that struck me. Uh, eating locusts is good, but shrimp is bad. I don't know why uh, that's the case. I'm sure there's some medical reasons. Uh, God loves sideburns. Uh, he tells them not to shave their sideburns. I think Duck Dynasty would have been very popular in, um, in the time of Leviticus. Tattoos of any kind are not allowed. You know, even the cute little ring ones you put on instead of wearing a wedding band. Uh, tattoos are not allowed in any, any form. Back talking to your parents could get you killed. Uh, absolutely no clothes of mixed fiber. So those of you who are wearing polyester here today, you are you're committing a sin. Those of you who are in spandex, you're committing multiple sins. Uh, <laughs> I threw this one in. I probably shouldn't have, but one of the laws states that if two men are in a fight, one reaches out and grabs the other in a particularly sensitive area, um, that he's to have his hand cut off. Now, see, I don't even know why that was necessary. I mean, was that the usual fighting style of the Israelites? I, I, I don't really know, but in whatever case, it's, it's, it's in God's Word. And there are many other challenging laws that are given. And I'm not trying to appear sacrilegious. I'm just trying to say we have trouble even comprehending what, why do we, why is this here? Why does God want this in the Bible? There's got to be a reason. And almost all of it is what is considered law, which then we stumble over trying to figure out how do we manage today this thing of law. So I, I don't have I'm going to just kind of give a run-through here that there are different kinds of laws that are given in the book of Leviticus. Uh, everybody recognizes this who studies this very much. There are the civil laws, and these are the laws that govern how the nation of Israel is to operate. It's like their constitution. It, it gives even much more specific laws about how they're to function as a nation. Then there are the ceremonial laws. These are the regulations that talk about uh, cleanliness and the sacrificial system, things like that. Uh, some of these laws, too, directly apply to the tribe of Levi, the Levites, the priestly tribe, and some of these laws apply to the people as a whole. So, for instance, um, the, the mixed fiber law. The Levites were allowed to wear clothing of mixed fiber. The people were not. So really that law was given to distinguish these are the Levites, these are the priestly, this is part of their garments, and the people are not to wear them. They're to wear another cloth so that it didn't get confused about who was of the tribe of Levi or not. And it goes on, it goes on like that. Then there are what are considered the moral laws. These declare what God sees as immoral. 
everything from murder to theft to ideals for sexuality. Now, when Jesus came, he states what we would consider some, um, some, some things about the law that could seem contradictory, even in his statements about the law. For instance, he said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So in one hand, he seems to say all of the law still applies to today. And then on the other hand, he'll turn around and say something about the law is fulfilled in him and it no longer applies. And so we're left trying to figure out how, how does the law work in the people of the new covenant? And part of that has to do with the distinction between the civil laws and the ceremonial laws and the moral laws that Jesus, that God gives and that Jesus talks about. So, for instance, in the civil laws, I believe that Jesus is saying he has come to establish a new Israel, a new people. And that the civil laws that were given for the nation and how they operate uh, no longer apply. Those laws that were given have been fulfilled in him. There is no, technically for us, nation of Israel in which God rules and reigns. There is the people of God and the kingdom of God, and God has placed his spirit on all of us, the people of God. Then there are the ceremonial laws um, that, that are given, that represent uh, holiness before the Lord. And what God was going to do about it, how God was going to take care of the people's sins, really. And Jesus came and fulfilled those laws. Really, um, without going into it, that's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. The whole book of Hebrews is a reflection of the book of Leviticus saying that Jesus is greater than the sacrificial system, Jesus is greater than the priestly system, Jesus is greater than Moses, Jesus is greater than. Jesus came and fulfilled the ceremonial laws. All that was found in that system is found in, is found in him. The moral laws, however, my belief is the moral laws still stand because they have to do with the character of God. And they have to do with how God sees people and how they interact. So to say that the law to no longer wear mixed cloth and the law to not sleep with whoever you want to, that there are two different laws, one still applies and one no longer does, I don't believe is a problem at all. As a matter of fact, I believe that's what the New Testament teaches us about how to interpret how to interpret the law, and how to interpret the Levi book of Leviticus. So, the book of Leviticus is important to us, and we, I could do a whole series of sermons on the law. I'm giving you just a, a quick overview, and hopefully it won't cause more confusion, but it'll help us direct our path just a little bit more. The book of Leviticus was important because it was important to Jesus. During Jesus' time, this is remarkable for us to even think of. We think of everybody who lived in Jesus' time as being uneducated, considering the Word of God. And as a matter of fact, uh, boys uh, particularly memorized the book of Leviticus first. 
first book of the Bible, and they memorize the whole thing. We can't even read the book, and they're memorizing it. So when Jesus goes at the age of 12 and talks to the teachers of the law, and his parents find him debating, I, I believe it's because he's already got the book of Leviticus memorized. He's looking at it from a different light, and now he's discussing it with them. As a matter of fact, one of the verses that Jesus quotes the most comes from the book of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. One of his most quoted verses. It was important to him. It was important to their time. It's the story of redemption and holiness. The book of Leviticus, for most people, we misunderstand the book of Leviticus. We think the book of Leviticus is this. You have to obey these laws in order to get redeemed. But really, if you look at the flow of the story, Exodus is the book of redemption. The people have come out of slavery. Why? Because because God did it. He delivered them with his mighty hand. He brought them out of the nation of Egypt. And now they're at They're at the base of Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments have been given. And for the next year, they pretty much camp right there. And it's during this time that the book of Leviticus is given. So you've got the book of of Exodus, which gives the story of redemption. And then the book of Leviticus is this. God is saying, I'm going to dwell in the middle of you. I'm going to put my presence right smack dab in the middle of the people. And the people, you can just see them. How are we going to live with God's presence in the middle of our midst? How are we we a sinful people going to live with a perfectly holy God right here? And that's really what the book of Leviticus is about. Redemption and now holiness. How do we live? How are our sins taken care of when we continue to sin with God present here. Does that make sense? So third, uh, it points to the gospel of forgiveness. We're going to see this in a minute. It points to the gospel of forgiveness. How do we have our guilt and our sins taken care of? How did the people at that point? And as I've said, it helps us understand the New Testament. You'll never really understand the book of Hebrews, for instance, if you don't read Leviticus and get some grasp on uh, what God has, has given them. So, here's what I want to do. Most people believe, and I do as well, that the high point of the book of Leviticus occurs in Leviticus chapter 16, which is the specific instructions about the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, uh, the day when the sins of the people are atoned for. And you can think of atonement as at one meant. How are we, how's our relationship with God one? How does it stay one? And that's what the Day of Atonement uh, gives them. But to look at Leviticus 16, let me back up just to show you how important these instructions are. Back to chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Here's chapters 10, verses 1 and 2. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. 
So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. God takes holiness and order very seriously, and he did at this time. The, the, these are the sons of Aaron. They're part of the tribe of Levi. They're, they're, they're in, in other words. And they say, hey, let's, let's light a fire before the Lord. Now, we don't know what's in their heart. We don't know if it, this is like a pure, like, I really want to worship God today. Let's light some fire and go worship God. And, or was it like, hey, we're going to take over kind of thing. We, we don't really get that picture, but what we do know is it wasn't a good time. It wasn't in God's order because fire comes and consumes him. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy in the sight of all the people I will be honored. Whatever the case may be, God is saying to them, this did not honor me. And there's like 10 sermons I could preach on this topic about God. You know, the question about worship is not really, how do I want to worship God today? The question about worship should be, God, how do you want to be worshiped today? You're the one who's worthy. It's not what I feel like. It's what he is asking of us when we come before him to worship. These sons of Aaron, they, they weren't honoring him. And in their dishonor, they're sinning before the Lord and their lives are taken. Skipping over to chapter 16, it references back to this account when it says, and this is the whole chapter on the Day of Atonement. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. Now, I, we've talked about this in the past, but for those of you who are new, let me just give you just a, 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 just a taste of the background of this. This is a, a diagram of the tabernacle, which when, then becomes a, a picture of what happens in the temple. You, on one side, to, my, to this right, you have the entrance gate, and then there's an outer area that's uncovered. And in this uncovered open area, it's, it's still got a tent around it, but it doesn't have a cover, a roof over it. You have the altar of burnt offerings and the golden lampstand. I've done a sermon on this before. It was probably about a year or two ago. It was really good. You should get it if you don't have it. And uh, then you come into the tent, and in the tent, there is divided into two areas. There's the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense where the priests went in on a regular basis to do their duties. They would offer sacrifices. They would be in this area. And then inside of that is what's called the most holy place or the holy of holies where the high priest could only go once a year, that's the instructions he's about to get, to offer up a sacrifice of a atonement for the people. Once a year. And God is going to give him this instructions. And inside that is the Ark of the Covenant. I know I always make this reference whenever I talk about the Ark of the Covenant about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, and in it is the Ark of the Covenant. 
And you have the two angels. Those are angels' wings are on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. This is just what we, our best guess based on descriptions, what it looks like. And in between the areas of the angels is what, that area is called the mercy seat. That is when he's talking about the cover of atonement or the mercy seat, that's what he's talking about. So when the priest is going to come in and make a sacrifice, he's going to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat or the cover of atonement to make a sacrifice for the people. And you can see in this really lame picture, uh, but it's about the best I could find, that again to my right, there's a kind of purple curtain. That's the first entryway into the holy place where the, most of the priests could go. And then there's another curtain uh, behind that, which is the curtain that stands as the veil of the temple. And through the veil, only the high priest could go, and only then once a year. The veil in the tabernacle was four inches thick. Uh, if you read the instructions about it, it was, um, it, it literally, the word for the veil means shut off. It was the holy place where the presence of God. And so what happens in chapter 16 is a description of what can occur when the high priest is going to go into the holy place to make atonement for the sins of the people in this once-a-year celebration before the Lord. Let me summarize what chapter 16 says for you uh, just a little bit. <clears throat> so what would happen is, a week beforehand, the high priest is put in seclusion. They don't want to risk anything, him becoming unclean or unholy in any way. So he's put in seclusion. He's reading the Bible. He's reading the Word of God. He's praying. Um, he, he is, he's getting food from the other priests so that he can only get food that is considered totally clean. The night before the Day of Atonement, he stays up all night praying and reading God's Word to purify his soul, to get ready to go into the holy place. Then on that morning, he is bathed fully. His old clothes are taken away. He's bathed completely. And on him are put white linen to wear. And then he goes into the holy place and he makes a sacrifice on behalf of himself. Uh, he's going to go in here three times. The first time he goes in and makes a sacrifice for himself. He comes back out. He takes off all his clothes again and gets another bath. And then another more white linen. Then he goes back in and he makes a sacrifice on behalf of the people. I mean, excuse me, on behalf of the priests. He comes back out, clothes off, fully bathed, new clothes, goes back in and makes a sacrifice for the people. By the way, this, is, this takes place in front of everybody. I know our standards, sometimes they would put up a, a, a thin, um, I don't know what the word is, curtain or whatever for modesty, but you, sometimes not. It just took place where everybody, because this guy represents all the people. And this was, they were celebrating him. Go, get our sins 
get our sins taken care of. And so he goes in three times offering sacrifices on, on behalf of the people. Then in chapter 16, there's two goats or lambs that are considered sacrifices. There's the one that the high priest makes at the altar for the people. And then in chapter 16, verse 10, there's another goat that's chosen. And it says, but the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Down in verse 21, chapter 16, it says, He, the high priest, is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. So you get the picture, I hope. There's the sacrificial goat. There's the sacrifice for the people. And then there's the, the scapegoat. And the scapegoat sends the people. Priest puts his hand on him. They, they cast him out of the camp. And someone is assigned to follow him. Because, you know, he, he's got all the sins of the people on him. It would be bad if... He came back in the camp. Oh, there's the goat. You know, there's my, there's my sins coming back again. No, they, they follow the goat out, and as tradition would have it, the, the priest is to lead him to a place where he dies. Picture that however you want, uh, over a cliff or whatever, but just to make sure the goat doesn't come back. <clears throat> so what do we learn from this chapter? If this is so important, what are we supposed to pick up? for the lessons that we have. And I think they're powerful. And first one is this. Our sin is much worse than we imagined. Our sin is much worse than we imagined. Reading Leviticus, you get this sense over and over again that this great gulf exists between us and God. Yes, God has set the people free, but the holiness of God, He is so holy and we are so not. That this gulf exists. I mean, Aaron's sons, they made one false move. Light a little fire in a censer, bring it into worship. Sounds like a great idea. They're gone. They're toast. Because the holiness of God is so holy. What is the standard that God uses that overcomes this gulf? What is the passing grade? How good is good enough? No matter how you cut it, people, we have a very man-centered view of sin. Our sin is never that bad in our own eyes. I mean, those of you who are married, again, a slight discussion with your wife, call it what you will, slight discussion with your wife, and you always minimize what you did and maximize what they did. Hello? Hello? I mean, really, you kind of play down what you did. It really wasn't that bad. It really, uh, you know, wasn't that But what you did, oh, my goodness. I mean, you may find this remarkable, but 90%, I uh, forget 90, 99.9%, 100% of the time when people come to me for counseling, marital counseling, it's, it's this. If you'll just fix them, our marriage will be good. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever had anybody come in and say to me, you know what, it's me, I'm really terrible. I am the problem here. 
Very rarely, very rarely will that occur. Why? Because we minimize our own sin. We don't see sin as that big a deal. Listen, there is sin against another person. There is sin against, you know, you kick your dog, you've sinned against your dog. You kick the door, it's not, you don't sin against a door, it's just a door. You know, you kick your kid, you're sinning against your... Whatever the case. But ultimately, why the Bible says sin is such a big deal is that all sin is sin against God. Hello? In other words, even if there is an offense against another person or against another entity, that ultimately sin is a problem. Sin is really sin because it's against God. And God sees sin as a, as a really big deal. I mean, let's just be honest. I'm standing up here preaching to you. Uh, I, honestly, I did not. I did bathe this morning and put on clean clothes. So, but I didn't stay up all night praying, trying to get my soul clean. And so even as I'm standing up here, you know, at times you, you, you're preaching, and for those of you who never preached or stood before people and spoke, you're thinking, I wonder what they're thinking about me. I wonder how this is going. Oh, so-and-so's asleep again. I see, and... I, I wonder who's where and who's watching on, 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 on the live feed when they really should be at church this morning. And, you know, your mind is going through all of this stuff. And what I'm saying is, no matter how, and I got other thoughts too, I'm not even going to share with you. But what I'm saying is, even in the best of circumstances, our hearts are just, I mean, really, we have trouble. In the best of circumstances, we have trouble. And, and, the point is this, all of us are in this boat, right? Hello? For all of sin. I was going to have you just turn and tell your neighbor, you're a sinner. Yeah, you too. You know, the person right now, I mean, everybody. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the point that the book of Leviticus is making is this, our sin is much worse than you can possibly imagine. Quit glossing over it. Quit excusing it. Now, you may say, well, man, Pastor Bart is really beating us up this morning about our sin. Look, until we get to a place where we see our sin for sin, we're going to have a problem moving forward in the grace of God. When, uh, when I started training, to, when I just stupidly signed up for an Ironman uh, race, um, the part that scared me to death was the swim. I mean, I, I figured if, you know, there's a swim, bike, run, right, in an Ironman triathlon. So I'm figuring out if things go bad on the bike, I'll just get off. I'll just quit. Or the run, I'll just stop. Call a taxi, something. But swimming in open water, you got nowhere to go. You know, you, got, you just got to keep, keep on swimming. What's that, Dory? Keep swimming. Okay, that, that kind of thing. You just keep swimming. And I'm not that great a swimmer. And the idea of swimming 2.4 miles was really overwhelming to me. So um, I've got friends who know how to swim. And so I signed up for a class with Rob and Jenny. It met at what, 3 in the morning? What time was that stupid class? I mean, really, the sun wasn't up. We're outside swimming, uh, trying to learn to swim. And I remember day, there was a swim coach there, and I got the pool, and I'm swimming. He said, well, let me just see you swim. And I said, I'm shaking his head like, I, he was trying not to be like, embarrass me totally. 
than just say, you're awful at this. He just worked with me and helped me learn how to swim. And I would go to swim class and got better. And then I had friends like Andrea who went out to Oak Mountain State Park and swam in that lake out there with me to make sure I didn't drown. Or at least if I did, they could go back and tell Kathy, yeah, he's gone. He's gone. You know, at least somebody knew where I was uh, when, I, when I was doing the swim. I mean, there are people who swim the English Channel 21 miles. There are people, I, I heard Diane and I had speak a little over a year ago, and she swam from Cuba to Key West. That's over 100 miles. It was a 100-mile swim. I've never heard of anybody swimming from California to Japan. So the point is this. You know, I, we minimize our sin, basically saying, yeah, my sin's only like a 100-yard yard sin, or two-mile, or a 100-mile. No, you, our sin is a gulf that is bigger than anything we can possibly imagine. And it's created this, who can swim to Jesus kind of thing. The answer is no one. No one. It's impossible. Our sin is that big a deal, and that's what the book of Leviticus tells us. But really, it moves forward in a greater message to me, which is this, that God's grace is greater than we ever dreamed. Yeah, I can't swim to Jesus, but Jesus came to me. God's grace is released in our lives. This whole thing about two goats Two sacrifices, it, it kind of confuses us at times, but it's a picture, really, of what God is going to do, the grace of God in our lives. The first goat, the first goat is to, to say that our sin is paid for. The sacrifice is to say we are forgiven for that debt of sin that we have. For the wages of sin is, what we deserve is death. There's a debt that had to be paid. There's a debt that had to be paid. And, I mean, if you wreck someone's car and you go to court and you pay for their car, you pay your debt, it's done. Taken care of your debt. That's called justification. You have been justified before God. The debt of your sin is paid for. But the other goat, the goat, the scapegoat, the one that's kicked out into the wilderness, it illustrates the concept of of cleansing. Not only are sins forgiven, but they're removed from us. People, this, this grace is so great that God not only says, hey, you're forgiven, but as far as the east is from the west, I'm going to remove your sins from you. What did you do to deserve this? You didn't do anything. You didn't do anything. The Puritans had this saying that said, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. You get that? Even our tears of repentance. We're so bad that even when we repent, the tears need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's what God's grace does for us. There's this whole story about Sam Houston. He was one of the founders of Texas. He then comes to know the Lord. He gets baptized in, uh, in the river, I think the Brazos River in Texas. And, and uh, when he comes up, 
out of the water. The pastor says, Sam, your sins are washed away now in the deepest ocean. And Houston replied, God help the fish. I mean, that idea of our total depravity, total means total, meaning no matter what is inside of me, it's still, it's tainted with the, the scourge of sin. But God's grace is greater. It is greater than I've, you could ever dream. Here's what the message of grace in Leviticus tells me. You know, I've heard people say, you know, my sin is just too big. My sin is too great. And in the middle of this chapter in 16, verse 16, it says, whatever their sins have been. That word whatever means whatever. Whatever. I know I'm speaking, I'm sounding like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth at the same time kind of thing. I'm saying your sin is really a big deal, whatever your sin is. But I'm also saying this, God's grace is greater than your sin, whatever your sin is. That's how great the grace of God is. When you say, when you say, I can't be forgiven, I don't think you're over-exaggerating the nature of your own sin. You're under-emphasizing the power and the grace of God. You hear me? In other words, you're not saying, oh, my sin is such a big deal, I'm exa you're exaggerating. No, what you're saying is God is not big enough. And the book of Leviticus and what we'll see in the New Testament is that God is not only bigger, he's bigger. He's greater. He can handle it. Some people have said, you know, God, for, can, God can forgive me, but I can't, I can't forgive myself. Let me just say in love that what you're basically saying is that your opinion is more important than God's. You're saying, you know, my opinion about me matters more than what God says about me. If God says you're forgiven, hey, you're forgiven. Walk in it. Now, emotionally, it may take you a while to move through it. I don't want to underestimate that. But start claiming what God says about you. I, I, read this, I read this saying a while back. It was a long time ago. It says, don't, don't try to out-holy God. You know, don't try to be more holy than God is. You can't do it. The day of atonement at one moment means we're at one with him. That's how, that's how great the grace of God is. Here's the final point, and it's the Day of Atonement, which I've been saying this several ways, is all about Jesus. All about Jesus. I mean, the fingerprints, the shadow of the coming of Jesus is all over this. Now, this, the whole sacrificial system, the whole tabernacle system, the whole priestly system, the whole scapegoat, all of that is a shadow of the coming light that is Jesus. It's all, about, it's all about him. All of it can be found in him. He is the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world that, that through which we receive forgiveness. He is the scapegoat 
of which all the sins are placed on him. So not only are we forgiven, but we were cleansed on the cross. All of the pictures that Hebrews paints is that that all of this of the sacrificial system, the book of Leviticus is really important because it shows us what Jesus is coming to do. He is in the person the day of atonement. Paul says it like this in Romans 3. He is the mercy seat. Jesus is where the blood was sprinkled, where it talks about atonement for our sins. That is Jesus. He is redemption. He is he is justification. He is atonement. I mean, it's all found, found in him. The gospel in the four, word, in four words can be summed up in some ways, Jesus in my place. Jesus took my place, what I deserve. We could go through the whole Holy Week activities and talk about how they line up with the Day of Atonement, even though it was Passover when the day, you know, it wasn't, it was different, a different holiday, but you can see how a lot of it, the seven days leading into from, from the, the triumphal entry through the cross, how they, there are similarities to what happens with the high priest in the Day of Atonement. Here, here's the point I, I would want you to see as you read the book of Leviticus is that it, it's not just a book about, about laws. It's not... It's not just a book that was written that tells them what they need to do to get to God. It's a book that was written to show what God did to get to them and what he does for each of us. What should our response be? This is, this is how good the gospel is to me. We just need to receive it. <clears throat> Think about this. What did they do to need to receive what God had done for them? Really, if you look at the way the whole thing is structured... Their biggest deal was to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Everything kind of structured from, from that idea of worship. What did they do on the Sabbath? Hello? Basically nothing. I mean, really, if you think about it, remembering the Sabbath day and keep it holy, it's a day of rest. You rest in the Lord. The Sabbath principle is this that comes through the book of Leviticus to us is that Jesus did it all. Now, what do I do? Well, I rest in him. Does that mean I do nothing? It's not what I'm trying to say. The book of Ephesians makes it clear that we are now God's workmanship created in advance to do good works in him. But our good works are a response to this glorious gospel that we've received. We have to receive it. Listen, this message can be... I, I've heard a lot of the grace message really taken out of context and put into a whole different way that's confusing. But there's been this argument that, that really our best hope 
for getting people to come to God is to hammer their sin over and over and over and over again, but not to preach about the grace of God. Well, that seems kind of stupid, doesn't it? I mean, give them no hope. I mean, that was the old message. Hey, you got to keep hammering on punishment because if you don't, people will get out of line. John Bunyan got arrested for this idea, preaching the idea of God's grace overcame our sin, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. And his response to this idea is, if people really see that Christ has removed the fear of punishment from them by taking it into himself, they won't do whatever they want. They'll do whatever he wants. That's the power of the gospel. And we need to receive it and walk in it. The book of Hebrews, in its summary, really, as it kind of is winding down on this whole book of Leviticus and what the response should be, says this, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of what? Praise. The fruit of lips that confess his name. He's already done it all. Let's do this. Our sacrifice should be this. It's a life of praise. And he goes on and says, and do not forget, this is the next verse, by the way, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Everything we do is a response to the amazing work of of God in our life. When you read the book of Leviticus next time and you're sludging through it, You're trying to make it. I pray that when you get to chapter 16, there's something that makes you just stop and worship and praise God for this picture of atonement that was given to them but for us. Without going into all the Old Testament details, every sacrifice that that priest made where the people's forgiveness, every scapegoat that was cast out into the desert, that only temporarily took care of the people's sins. All of that punishment was put off until the cross. That's why the weight of it was so great on Christ. The people's sins were forgiven, but it wasn't fully covered until Christ came and took care of the sins for the past, present, and your future. May we offer up a sacrifice of praise. May we do works that bring glory to him as a result. Our sin is greater than we could have ever imagined, but God's grace is so much bigger than we've ever dreamed. Walk in the grace of God by the power of Christ and his spirit. Lord, we thank you today. We praise you. We rejoice in you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who has not received the grace of God for the forgiveness of their sins and the removal of it, that God, you would, you would help them to, Spirit of God, you draw them to the name of Jesus right now. That Lord, as we worship, as we give back to you, God, a portion of what you've given to us, that their hearts will be drawn to Jesus. For those of us who are followers of Christ, I pray that today that the Spirit of God would enliven to us who we are in in you, O Lord. That we would see ourselves, we would see the body of Christ, we'd see our mission as you see it. And that we would walk empowered by you. I pray that as we come to a time of giving right now that this will be our dedication to you. 
This will be, Lord, take this small little bit, this small portion, and may it be used for the, for the kingdom of God. May this little bit represent all of me. Take me and use me, Lord, for your kingdom's sake. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to have an offering. Gabriel.